It's my uh, privilege to introduce our guest speaker tonight, and Jeff has pastored churches in uh, the state of Indiana, in Pennsylvania, in Washington, Indiana again, and currently Jeff serves as a state minister um, in the state of Indiana, and his primary job there is to help churches that are really struggling or churches that are in decline. So he comes alongside them and helps them to, to turn that corner and get their church moving in a, a positive direction again. Um, if I had to take just one word to describe Jeff, and that's a hard thing to do, but I would say that the word passionate is the best single word to describe him because he is passionate about everything he does. And if you knew Jeff very well, you know that he is a very passionate Pittsburgh Steelers fan. That's why he's here actually this week, because he wanted to go to training camp. But he's also a passionate Pittsburgh Pirate fan and a very passionate Penguin fan. So he's passionate about those things. He's passionate about his grandkids. He's passionate about his wife. Um, but most of all, what uh, always strikes me the most about him is his passion and his love for being a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. And I should also tell you, in all fairness, that he is my wife's uh, oldest brother. So would you welcome to the stage Jeff Mattis tonight. And being the older brother, I'm trusting my younger sister to, uh, to not jiggle with the microphone volume or anything like that today, so I'm in good hands. Um, hey, it's, it's, it's good to be here. It's the first time I've got a chance to, to see your new facility, and man, I'm just blown away. This is like the coolest place I've ever seen. So uh, just love being here, and thank you for inviting me here. Uh, before we begin, uh, let's just talk to God a little bit and ask his blessing on what we're about to do. Heavenly Father, I thank you for One Life Church. I thank you for their passion to proclaim the gospel so that broken people like us can find wholeness and life and hope. And Father, I just pray for your word that will be read. Father, may it be more than just words on a page, but may you, through your Holy Spirit, bring these words to life, write them upon our hearts, and do the work that only you can do. And we trust you and we praise you. And we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. When you hear the word Christian, a lot of things come to mind. If, if you ask somebody, um, are you a Christian? You're going to hear a lot of different answers. Some people will say, well, yes, I am. And they'll point to a time in their life where maybe they knelt at an altar or they made a decision for Christ, and they kind of have that pinpointed. Other people will say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not like those people. Um, maybe I don't do this or I don't do this, but I do, I, I believe in this. Other people will say, no, I'm not, but I am spiritual. Um, I believe in God. Others will say, um, I am, but I'm, I'm, I'm not like those people. And you'll get a whole range of answers to that question. 
And the word Christian really is vague. It means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And the early followers of Christ in the New Testament, did you know they didn't even call themselves Christians? The term started as a derogatory term, kind of a label put upon them by people outside the church. And in Acts 11, 26, it says this, that in the Antioch church, the disciples were first called Christian. And that verb called is passive, meaning the Christians didn't call themselves by that term. Others outside the Antioch church got to know these people and put that label upon them. So if the early church didn't call themselves Christian, what did they use to describe themselves? What word did they use? Well, that answer is also in that verse. They called themselves disciples. And disciples... That word disciple is used 218 times, I think, in the New Testament alone, and the word Christian is only found three times. Now, I tell you all that, not so you say, well, I guess we shouldn't call ourselves Christians anymore. No, that term's fine. I'm just saying that the term Christian is kind of airy, it's kind of vague, but I think the term disciple has a lot more definition to it. And it more clearly defines what being a follower of Jesus Christ is all about. And to really zero in on what it means to be a follower, what it means to be a disciple of Christ, we're going to go back to a key scripture, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that's Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. So what's going on here? Why would these two sets of brothers, four men in all, all fishermen, decide to leave everything and to follow Jesus? It's almost like if you didn't know any better, you didn't know the context, it would almost be like Jesus put a Jedi mind trick upon these four guys. Or like a, like a cheap version of the Scooby-Doo cartoon, you know, where they just turned into zombies. Jesus said, follow me and did the, the spinning coin or something, and they said, yes, master, and just put out their hands and just started following him and left their livelihood, left their nets, left their father, left all that. But there's a lot going on in this passage of Scripture that it really helps us to understand the historical context of that day. Now, culturally, back in the time of Jesus, all Jewish boys at age five went to school to learn what they called the Torah. That's the first five books of what we would call the Old Testament. They spent five years learning the Torah until they were 10 years old. And at age 10, there was a cut, to use a sporting term. If you've ever been cut from a ball team, you know how that feels. And so there was a weeding out process. After five years, age five to 10, age 10, only the best students were invited to continue. The rest of the boys were sent home to dad. You learn the family business. You be a carpenter. You be a fisherman. You be a farmer. Whatever it is that your family does, but you don't have what it takes. 
And then those that did, from age 10 to age 17, went on to not, not only learn the Torah, the first five books, but the, what the rest of what we would now call the Old Testament. And they would study it. They would memorize a lot of it. And then there was a second weeding out process, a second cut. At age 17, if you were really good and you were excellent at what you did, you can make a career out of being a religious ruler. And in that day, no Jewish mother would be more proud of their son to say, my boy is a Jewish ruler. Oh, my. He is? Oh, yes. He is. He's studying to be a rabbi. No. Yeah. He made the cut at age 10. He made the cut at age 17. He's found a rabbi that take him under his wing, and he is going places, baby. It, it did... In those days, being a successful Jew wasn't being a doctor or a lawyer or a politician. It was being a student of religion, student of Hebrew. And what you would do if you were one of those all-stars, you made both these cuts, you were allowed to continue. Every, these, every one of these 17-year-old young men knew certain rabbis that they admired and they thought it would be really cool if I could be a disciple of one of those guys. And the Hebrew word for disciple is called Talmud. So you found a rabbi you wanted to study, and you just sat yourself down right at his feet. And right there would be an oral exam, and the rabbi would quiz you to see if you knew your stuff. And he would ask you questions to see if you were worthy to be his disciple. And rabbis were selective. Well, why? Because every Jewish kid wanted to be a religious ruler. They wanted to become a rabbi themselves. So they weren't dreaming about becoming the next Michael Jordan or a professional in any other sport. They wanted to become a rabbi so they could be highly selective in who they wanted. And they were highly selective for another reason. Because not only were they going to teach these young men everything they knew, so they could speak like they spoke, but they were teaching these young men to act like they would act. And they didn't want to have anybody say, well, I studied under you, and then they were an embarrassment. So they wanted kids that would really toe the line and become mini-me's, and disciples. As a matter of fact, the highest compliment you could give a follower of a rabbi was to tell him this phrase, boy, the dust of your rabbi is all over you. The dust of your rabbi is all... And it didn't mean, dude, you stink, you need to take a shower. It meant that you followed that rabbi so closely that everywhere he walked, everywhere where his feet kicked up some dust, that dust came upon you. So you talk like he talked. You have the same mannerisms that he had, and you act and believe the exact same things as your rabbi. Now, in those days, there were a few superstar rabbis that had what the Jews would call semica. Now, semica rabbis, which means authority, they were very rare. As a matter of fact, in the first century, there was probably less than a dozen known men that were declared having this authority or semica. 
One of them is mentioned in the New Testament. His name is Gamaliel. You'll find him in Acts when the disciples are being persecuted and beaten for the first time after doing a healing. And a man named Gamaliel, this rabbi that was a superstar rabbi with Seneca, rose up and spoke and said wise words to the religious rulers that helped free the disciples. Paul studied under Gamaliel. So he was one. They were masters of the Torah. They had a mystical quality about them. They seemed to possess authority so that when they said, you've heard it said in Scripture, but I'm going to tell you a new interpretation. You see, they could. They were so close to God that the people believed they could speak brand new interpretations to Scripture. Not only that, but they were known to perform miracles. So to be a rabbi with Seneca, you had to do those two things. You had to speak with authority. You had to, to be spirit-filled. You had to be known to have verifiable miracles performed through you. And not only that, you had to have two other rabbis that already had this Seneca say, that dude, he's the real deal. We vouch for him two of them. And if you had all that happen, then you had this status, this superstar status as a rabbi. And it was a really exclusive club. So when it comes to all these rabbis, where does Jesus fit in? Because you have Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee, sees these fishermen. What kind of a rabbi was he seen as? Well, in Luke chapter 2, we find him at the age of 12 in the temple And he's not receiving instruction by the teachers of the law. He's giving instruction to the teachers of the law in the Mac Daddy temple. Not in a little synagogue, but in the home base of Jerusalem, in the big temple. He's teaching them, age 12. He frequently says things like, you've heard it said. But I say to you, hmm. And people go, wow. He doesn't speak like the scribes who just repeat what is written. This guy speaks with authority. And throughout his earthly ministry, those that heard him were amazed. He performs miracles. Later in the same chapter, in Matthew chapter 4, you'll find that he goes throughout the region, quote, healing every disease among the people. And what about having this Semica confirmed by two respected authorities? Well, when Jesus goes prior to this to get baptized by John the Baptist, another rabbi who just exudes and is dripping with this authority, this semica, John the Baptist tells Jesus, man, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. You should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. Well, that's affirmation number one. Jesus gets baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. Affirmation number two. And then when Jesus rises from the water, you hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Affirmation number three. That's three pretty good affirmations. So Jesus, this new rabbi loaded with Semecha, chooses his first four disciples. Two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And in a time when rabbis were highly selective, Jesus has four picks in the first round. Let me put this in stealer terms. He's got the first four picks. 
of the disciple draft. Now, can you imagine if the Steelers had the first four picks in the 2017 draft? I would think I'd died and gone to heaven. I mean, the first four, really. I mean, we'll be set up. This will be like the draft way back when, you know, where we got Lambert and, 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 and Joe Green and, and all those guys. I mean, we're going to have a dynasty. This is going to be incredible. And so you're just waiting for Roger Goodell to come up and say who the Steelers pick. <clears throat> and so he comes up and he says, with the first pick in the NFL draft, yes, yes, yes. The Pittsburgh Steelers, I can't believe it. Yes, 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 yeah. Bobby Joe Smith from Punxsutawney. You say, who? The press corps is looking through their draft guide. You know, the guy that Mel Kuyper with the evangelist hair, he's got this ashen look. He's never heard of Bobby Joe whatever from Punxsutawney. And they're saying, who is this guy? Who is this guy? You find out Bobby Joe didn't play varsity football at Penn State, nor Pitt nor Slippery Rock. As a matter of fact, he tried out for the varsity team at the Punxsy High School, but he got cut. And he played a little bit in junior high and peewee ball, but he wasn't good enough to really make anything out of it. And that's who he picked. And you're thinking, these guys are idiots. They don't know what they're doing. They just blew this chance. Well, maybe the second pick will be better. Second pick, Mel Kuyper's given his the number one guy still on the board for the Pittsburgh Steelers, the number one guy. This is who they need right here. And then he goes for a second pick, Roger Goodell, with the second pick in the NFL draft, the Pittsburgh Steelers select Paul Schmo from Johnstown, Pennsylvania. All right, who's he? Mel Kuyper's passed out. His hair hit the floor and saved him from a concussion. And nobody knows who he is. And you find out again, this guy doesn't have any athletic ability, never really made it, didn't even letter in high school, and the Steelers took him. Every single pick. When Jesus had the first four picks, he selected guys that were fishermen. And you know what that means. They didn't make the cut. They didn't make it when they were 17. They didn't get that chance. They didn't make it when they were 10. When they were 10, the rabbi said, go home, boys. <laughs> Obviously, your skill is catching fish, not continuing on and learning the rest of what we now know as the Old Testament. I want to let that fact sink in a little bit. For us, because sometimes we read these stories and we say, Yeah, that's beautiful, that's cool. Fishermen, go be fishers of men. Yep, that happened. That's it. But we don't allow it to blow us away. When Jesus chose his team to build the church of Jesus Christ, he overlooked the superstars and he chose those whom the world had rejected. He chose the B squad. So when Jesus tells Peter and Andrew to follow him, well, yeah, of course. They're going to say, heck yeah. I mean, I don't know why this is happening. I remember getting sent home when I was 10 years old to go fish, and I'm, I'm trying to make a living at this as a fisherman. I'm picking up dad's business, but 
This guy comes through. Everybody's been talking about him. He's been doing miracles everywhere. We heard about that baptism thing. And holy cow, he comes out of it. And he's been teaching and wowing people since he was 12. And then he picks us. We get a second chance. We're on the team. We're the first four picks. So they couldn't walk away quick enough and let the nets drop and say, goodbye, Zebedee. Goodbye, Dad. We're leaving. We're going to go with Jesus. He selected them to follow him, to be like him, to know God like he knew God, to know what he knows, to do what he did, and to be filled with his power. Now, there's a few things in this story I want you to know about being a disciple. The first thing is Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. He skips the Ivy Leagues of the day. He didn't recruit the best scholars from the temple courts and say, follow me. He bypassed all the renowned philosophers that were around in Athens and Greece. He passed by the powerful emperors of Rome. He chooses men so ordinary It's almost laughable. No rabbis, no teachers of the law, no religious experts, not even a synagogue ruler from his hometown. Half of the guys he chose were fishermen. One was a former terrorist, and the other was, you might as well say he's an IRS agent for an invading force. He chooses the B team. Why? Because what he asks us to do doesn't depend on our ability, but our availability. Did you catch that? What he asks us to do doesn't depend on how gifted you are, how smart you are, how good-looking you are, how old you are, how young you are. It just depends on your ability to say, yes, I'm in. I'm here. I'll follow. I'll do it. And that's all he's looking for. There used to be an old game show called To Tell the Truth. Remember that where you heard this fantastic story about an individual that nobody really knows, but they did something significant in life. And then there would be this panel of contestants, and then they would bring up three individuals on the platform, and they would all claim to be this person. And then the panel would ask them a series of questions, and at the end of the game, they'd have to say who they thought was telling the truth. And then remember how they would do it? The three guys would kind of, you know, kind of make the motion. They were going to stand up, and and I'm him. And then all of a sudden, the one stands up, and everybody goes, oh, I didn't see that coming. Some of the most successful people that I know in life, some of the most successful people, kingdom-minded now, that I've ever met as pastors... If I line them up and I told you, here's what they've done. Here's how God has used them. Here's what they've accomplished through God in their life. And I had three individuals. Only one was the genuine article. I think you would miss it 90% of the time. Because they're not the most handsome or prettiest. They're not the most gifted speakers. They're not a person that would wow you with their charisma and personality. 
but they've been men and women that simply had an incredible ability to say yes, to sacrifice, to live on faith, to rely on God, and God has done incredible things through them. God wants to use every single person in this room. He wants to use you in your school. He wants to use you in your workplace. We need to stop making excuses that we're not gifted, we're not smart enough, I'm too young, I'm too old. He doesn't need our ability. He only wants us to say yes, to be available. Have you made yourself available? Have you said, here I am, God, send me. The second thing we learn about being a disciple is Jesus chose us. We didn't choose him. The way this took place in Jesus' day was that if you were the best in your class, you got selected by a rabbi, and those that were picked had this confidence that even in the darkest times, the most trying times of their studies, that they could say, you know what, even if I'm doubting myself, I have to remind me that I was chosen. My rabbi saw something in me. He had confidence in me. He could have bypassed me for any number of people, but for some reason, I'm the guy that's standing here. Not only did Jesus select the B team, what's more amazing is these disciples never sought him out. Did you catch that in the story? He's the one that came where they were and said, I see something in you. You want to follow me. You want to be my disciple. That kind of selection gives you confidence. As a matter of fact, one of the things you'll notice as you read the New Testament is how important this idea is of Jesus picking us and instilling confidence in us in our darkest times. It's a theme that runs through the entire letter of the Ephesians. In John 15, 16, Jesus tells his disciples this. He's speaking to the guys that he picked on this lakeshore. And he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. What are you struggling with today? Maybe you're struggling in your marriage Maybe you're struggling as a parent. Maybe you're struggling in what to do in your career. And you need to remember, Jesus chose you. He knew what he was doing when you stood at that altar with your spouse and you said, I do. He knew what he was doing when he gave you that child that is causing your hair to fall out. And that Texas tornado of a kid, yes, he knew what he was doing when he called you to be that mom, to be that dad. He knew what he was doing when he placed you in that job, that he would give you his wisdom and his, and his strength and his guidance to be able to maneuver to where he wanted you to go. And when our confidence begins to fail, this is where doubt takes hold. You know that old story in Matthew 14 where Jesus asked Peter to come on out, walk on water. And Peter does for a little, and then he sinks. And I really don't think he sank because he lost confidence in Jesus. I think he started getting wet because he lost confidence in Jesus' promise that he could work through him. Now, I don't know about you, but that hits me. 
Because so many times, it's not that I don't doubt Jesus could fill my shoes and do it wonderfully well, but can he really use me? Can I walk on that water? Can I cross that lake? Can I be that dad? Can I be that husband? Can Jesus fill me with his spirit and really do something through me because I can't do it? And when you stumble and fall, you need to remember, Jesus picked you. Jesus knew what he was doing. The one who called you is faithful. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Third characteristic in Matthew 4 of being a disciple is that our primary call, the primary thing you have to do to be a disciple is to simply follow the Lord. In verse 19, Jesus tells Simon and Andrew, follow me. And notice what he didn't tell them. He didn't say, okay, follow me and here's, here's, here's an agreement between you and me that you need to do these certain things and fulfill these requirements and, and, and hold to this schedule. And then you, you can stay on as my disciple. He didn't give them a list of tasks and assignments. He didn't even tell them where he was going to take them. All he did was say, follow. And I don't know about you, but to me, that's revolutionary. Because I just want to tell God, tell me where I'm going. Tell me how to get there. Tell me what I need to do. Tell me when I need to hit the, gra- the, the brakes, when I need to step on the accelerator. I can do this. Just tell me what I need. And he removes all that. And he just says, no, just, just, just follow me. Jesus' primary call is not for you and I to do stuff. It's to follow him and become like him. And to become like him, you have to know him. You have to spend time with him. You have to spend time in his word. You have to follow him so closely so that the dust of your rabbi is all over you. And you know what? When you start doing that, you start talking right, thinking right, praying right, acting right. And all of a sudden, you become the person God knew you could be when he said you. I'm calling you. I'm speaking to your heart. Today's the day where you follow forth. To follow him, we have to leave it all. Verse 22 says, immediately they left their boat and they left their father. Now, don't overreact. This doesn't mean that if you follow Jesus and become a disciple, you got to abandon your relationships and abandon your job and go off in some foreign mission field somewhere alone. What Jesus is asking is that the relationship you have with him is primary. Now, there are some parts of the world where following him might cost you your life. It might cost you the relationships with your parents and your siblings. They might never talk to you again. They might want to kill you. But it's going to cost you something. Now, how does this play out? If you're in school, you might be the only one in your circle that has a commitment to Jesus Christ to follow him. And you might get labeled that religious kid. That might be a price that you have to pay. Or if you're in college, you might get labeled a narrow-minded, hateful bigot. Ironically, as you are loving people the way Jesus loves people. But Jesus demands primacy. 
For some, it will come down to what you do with your income. The Bible says that everything we have belongs to God. The breath in our lungs, the money in our back pockets, the relationships that we have, the job that we have, the bank account that we have, the talents that we have, the life and the years that we've been given. Everything is a gift from God and we're going to be accountable to how we handle those gifts. And for a lot of people, I'll just be lovingly honest, you cannot be a disciple, you cannot be a follower of Christ and be unfaithful in your stewardship of what God has given you. Fifth, Jesus commands us to spiritually reproduce. And for a lot of us here, I'm convinced, this is new territory. Because everything else I've said so far, yeah, yeah, if you've grown up in church and if you've, you know about this Christian thing or this discipleship thing, yep, 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 I've heard it, good stuff, yep, drill at home, baby, I know what you're saying, but then you come to this reproduction thing, now, you can do it the old-fashioned way, like what Ron was saying. Your pastor is leading the way in doing that. But there's a lot of us that are Abraham and Sarah, and that's just not going to work for us. We've, 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 we, our season is past. But reproduce. Verse 19, Jesus says, follow me, notice this, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus was a fisher of men, and his disciples are also fishers of men. This isn't something only that Peter, James, John, and Andrew do. This is something that every single follower of Jesus does. There's no such thing as somebody who is not a fisher of men, who doesn't reproduce, that calls himself a disciple. Jesus said in John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How do you prove you're Jesus' disciple? Well, you're a fruit bearer. And if you're not bearing fruit, you need to take a hard look at how closely you're following your rabbi. The Great Commission was given by Jesus in Matthew 28, starting in verse 19. Jesus says this, some of the final words he said before he ascended into heaven following his resurrection. He tells his disciples, he tells us, go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Those Greek words, go, baptize, teach, they all derive their force from that verb, go. Go and make disciples. And this church, like a lot of churches, has ministries and programs. But if those ministries and programs don't have as a core component disciple-making, then what are you doing? It's the mission of the church. Jesus said, this is his mission. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. His mission is our mission. It's the thing God has called us to do. One of the reasons why I'm so passionate about doing what I do is because I remember what it was like to be a pastor in a local church and not having a clue. And sitting in my office, knowing I had this great commission, knowing my life should make a difference, I need to model this thing that our, my church should be a dynamic force for good in the community, but how do I do it? And I didn't have any other pastors coming around me. 
which I try to rectify to this day because I will not allow a young pastor or even an older pastor that says, I want my ministry to make a difference. I never want him or her to walk alone. But back in the day, I didn't have it. And so I bought book after book, how to preach. I bought a book on how to preach. When it came time to put somebody in the ground, how do you do a funeral? I bought a book. When it came time to do a wedding, bought a book. How do you do a wedding? Almost bada boom, bada bing, you know? And when it came to evangelism, how do you do it? So I saw this massive volume on the bookstore shelf called Evangelism by Robert Coleman. It was written in 1962, and it was still in print when I went into ministry, which was about 1965, somewhere around there. But, that was a joke. But anyhow, and it's a classic book, which means it's not really widely read anymore, and it's old. And, but he, what he said spoke to me. Now, here's a quote from the book. He says, Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing people for evangelism, nor can occasional prayer meeting and training classes do the job. Individual women and men are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not a something, but it's someone. God's plan for discipleship is you, not a program, not your pastor, not the worship team, not the guy standing up. It's you. Because only you live in the neighborhoods you live in. And you're placed there by the hand of God to be salt and light. So those people can rub shoulders with somebody that knows Jesus Christ. You are working where you work by the hand of God. Not only to earn a paycheck and be productive to society, but to be salt and light. So the people in your plant, in your office, wherever it is you work and collect a paycheck, they can rub shoulders with somebody that knows Jesus Christ, somebody that knows the good news that they might not even know that they desperately need. What can you do? Where can you start? You can begin by asking the Holy Spirit through prayer to identify a few people that you can begin to earnestly pray for because I believe that in our circle of influence, there are certain people that the Holy Spirit is already working, softening their hearts, preparing their minds to receive the truth of Jesus Christ, and we need to be praying. Show me them. Help me to have a heart that breaks for you. Help me to look at the people around me that they're either going to heaven or to hell. They're either sheep or goats, wheat or tares. You died for them. God forbid I walk through my life and keep it all to myself. Who can I pray for? And then when those people come to mind, thank God for them. And then start asking God through prayer, help my life to intersect theirs. Help me to have a divine encounters where I can love them, where I can talk to them, where I could build a relationship with them. And one of the greatest ways you can do that is when you get to know somebody, just tell them, could you tell me about yourself? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Did you go to church anywhere? Do you have any faith background? Were you married? I mean, people love to talk about them. Because when you ask them that, that tells them 
I matter to you. You want to hear about me? No, I do, I do, I do. I, I, I'd love to hear it. Tell me about it. When you pray that prayer to God, God, help my heart to break for what breaks yours. God, send people my way. Open my eyes. Have the scales fall from my eyes so that I can see people who you are working with, who are in my sphere of influence. I think all heaven stops and says, yes, hallelujah, finally. And God answers those prayers. Are you a disciple of Jesus? I think this whole thing of reproduction is one thing that God is just breaking my heart for. Because I went through church, I grew up in church, and this whole thing of becoming a fisher of men, I always thought it was Billy Graham's job. I always thought it was my pastor's job. I always thought it was for somebody who had the gift of evangelism. I always thought that if you knocked all those idols down, then I at least said, it's for an extrovert, not for me. It's for people that are people people. I'm not a people people. And God keeps saying, no, 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 no. It's for you. It's for you. It's for you. It's for everybody in this room. Everybody in this room to be a follower of Jesus, you better have a heart that breaks for the lost. And you better be praying, God, help my life matter. Because at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, isn't that really the main thing people talk about when we leave, when we die? It's not, man, did you see that car that he just picked up before he kicked the bucket? It wasn't, did you see what size of his mortgage was, where he lived? Holy cow. It wasn't even your GPA or where you went to school. What people be talking about is how your life impacted their life. That's the legacy. That's the legacy. That is, that's the name of this church, isn't it? You've got one life. Live it for the glory of God. Be a fisher of men. Have a heart that breaks for lost people. Would you stand and I'll pray and the worship team will come. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of speaking at One Life Church. Father, I thank you for giving me clarity on this message, even later in on life. I think it's a message that churches around this nation are finally beginning to get back to where it was from the start. Programs are great. Ministries are great. But what really makes a difference in the life of people outside of this church is the people inside of this church who in a few minutes are going to leave these doors and go to places where Pastor Guy will never encounter. And people that will never know the name of Ron Shirey or Guy Smith or anybody else on this platform. But they'll know you. They'll know us. And we're there by your hand. Holy Spirit, you're knocking at our door and saying, will you follow? 
Will you love? Will you do what I do? Will your heart get drawn to what my heart is drawn to? Will your heart break for those that I've died for? In Jesus' name, amen.